Our New Testament reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of incense with the prayers of the saints rose up before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures of the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. This is the word of the Lord. You need to know that we looked at the first five verses last week, uh, and I'll say something briefly about that, but very briefly, I would encourage you uh, to go back uh, because that is the main theme. We're go- you find in last week's message the single main theme of the seventh seal. Some of you have asked me questions over the last few weeks, and I enjoy that. It means that at least you're listening because no one can get this the first go-around. Uh, and I'm still asking questions about it. So please, uh, if you have a question. Now, and we're coming to, we're coming to passages now in chapter 8 and chapter 9 that are uh, so graphic. And, and you've got to look at it and say, what is this? We're going to answer some of that this morning. We'll answer it again next week. But if you still have questions after this morning's message about the passage this morning, uh, don't come and ask me about chapter 9 now. We'll get to that next week. But if you have questions about chapter 8, please call me. 
I would love to chat with you about it or get with you face to face so that we can talk about it. Before we come to this passage, let's pray and ask the true teacher. Let's ask our Father to teach us. Our Father, before we ask that you teach us, we bow before you as your priests in our congregation this morning. As we open your word, the one truth we do know, Father, is that John Sartell cannot speak to us this morning in a way in which we will grow spiritually. We'll grow spiritually in our very depth of our being. He can't teach that way. No man who stands by this desk can teach that way. And so, once again, we cast ourselves upon your grace and we ask, O oh, Father, that by the power of your Spirit, you would speak to us in these next few minutes. Open our eyes to see this scene. Open our ears to hear your voice. Change us, Father, maybe some of us for the first time. For the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. When the God of creation goes to war, Jesus continues to hold the great scroll which is the deed of ownership to all of creation. There's nothing in the universe over which he, Jesus, does not reign. In chapter 6, we saw Jesus open the first six seals that bound the scroll. As he released these, six different dramatic scenes were revealed. The first five scenes pictured what will happen in the centuries between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ. The sixth scene revealed the judgment, the sixth seal, and the scene from the sixth seal being removed revealed the judgment from which the world cannot escape. An ultimate judgment, an ultimate justice that happens at the return of Christ. In chapter 8, he finally releases the seventh and last seal which bound the scroll. When that seal is removed, what is the dramatic scene? We saw it last week. There's an immediate silence in heaven. Seven angels are introduced. And each angel is given a trumpet. But the main theme revealed by the removal of the seventh seal is prayer. That's the theme, prayer. During the all-filled silence in heaven, the past prayers of God's people are brought up before Him. An angel comes forward with a censer filled with incense. Burning incense, we saw last week, all through Scripture, 
from the Old Testament into the New Testament, into the Gospels, down to Revelation, incense is inextricably entwined, is synonymous with the prayers of God's people. The angel comes up before God with these prayers, with this incense. And then he takes the censer. Representing the prayers of the saints. And he throws it down on the earth. That's the picture. And it causes thunder, lightning, and an earthquake. When the prayers of the saints, it's graphic, it's plain here. When the prayers of the saints go up before God, he uses those prayers to shake the earth. It's like the incense is turned into nitroglycerin. Glycerin, just explosive. Now, after this graphic drama that demonstrates the significance and power of prayer for God's people during this time between the ascension and the return, after that graphic drama, the seven angels who's been given seven trumpets prepare to blow those trumpets. Now, what, what does a trumpet do? What do these trumpets mean? In the Old Testament, trumpets were used to announce the arrival of a king. They were used to call an army to battle. They were used, sounded at the beginning of any significant event. The trumpet sounded when Christ returns. That's why when Christ returns, it's always with the sound of the trumpet. Now, the central part of the book of Revelation is built around three cycles of seven. We have seen the seven seals. We now take up the seven trumpets. Following the trumpets, we will be confronted with seven angels holding seven bowls, seven vials. These three cycles cover the same period of history from the ascension of Christ to the return of Christ. To understand this, don't put it in consecutive order. Don't say, okay, you got the seals. Now, next in history comes the trumpets. And then next in history comes the bowls. No. All three cover the exact same period of time. Pretend that the trumpets are an overlay. And we've, here's the... Here's, Here's the sheet describing the seals. And you just set the trumpets down as an overlay over the seals. When we come to the bowls, the bowls will overlay the same period of time as the seals and trumpets. Now the trumpets, you will see, are more intense than the seals you'll see that the bowls are more intense than the trumpets. So there's a progression as, as you move through the seals, the trumpets, the bowls. There's more intensity and more destruction. So as we take up the trumpets, we'll be seeing the same events as we saw with the seals, but from a different perspective, from a different angle. It has a different emphasis. Each angel is called forth in succession to blow his trumpet. 
The trumpets are announcing the arrival of events that have already been described with each seal that was broken. The trumpets announce some of the same judgments as the seals. They're just seen from a different angle. Now, as we look at the first four trumpets, we will see that they may speak to us in some ways the result that was wrought by the four horsemen that we saw with the seals. Remember the first horsemen represented rulers and nations that conquered? This suggested conquering, conquest by battle, by wars. The second horse was blood red, and its rider carried a great sword causing strife. He represented civil strife, civil wars, revolution taking place among the people of the same nation. The third horse and rider represented drought and famine that caused starvation and death. The fourth horse and rider represented pestilence, disease, plague. Most scholars think that the trumpets are focused, however, on events described by the black horse of famine and the pale horse of pestilence and epidemics. Think about it for a minute. The first two horses was about nation warring against nation, rumors of wars, rumors of revelation. But famines and epidemics do not usually come from wars with other nations. What do we call them? We call them natural disasters. Why do I think, why do we think that the trumpets, these first four trumpets, represent uh, what the two last horses represented? Why that? Well, the first four trumpets depict God using ecological disruptions in his creation to bring his judgments to bear. In the seals, the emphasis on, of the first two horses seems to be on man's inhumanity to man. They depict wars driven by tyrants and despots and autocrats. But in the first four trumpets, we see what we would call natural disasters. Fiery hail, mountains being thrown into the sea. But notice these are not random acts of nature. They're ordered and announced from the throne of God. On December the 25th, 1991, Christmas Day, 1991, the hammer and sickle flag that had been flown for decades over the Kremlin was lowered for the last time. The USSR, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, was dissolving. Dissolving before eyes. You remember that. I remember that. We were shocked. The hammer and sickle flag of the Soviet Union would be replaced by the tricolor flag of Russia that now flies over the Kremlin. The former Soviet states of Asia and Eastern Europe were freed from the absolute rule of Russia. Now I remember 
what my thinking was at that time. It was a new thought in my mind. And I look back on it. It was a naive thought. It captivated my thinking for a few months. The United States was then, in a unique way, the world's remaining superpower. Russia still had the army with the nuclear arsenal, but not with the power it had one time had. There was China, but 30 years ago, China was not the threat it is today. In 1991, and people remarked about this. It was on the news. The world felt safer. But now to the point. What happens if a nation is not at odds with another nation? What happens if a nation is at odds with God? What happens when a nation is at war with God? What happens when God is at war with a nation? Russia and China do not represent the clear and present danger that God does. Why did I take time to tell you that? Because that's exactly the point of this passage. I say that because the ecological or natural disasters we see in the first four trumpets hearken back to the plagues that God brought down on Egypt in his judgment when he was at war with that country. You will see that the first four trumpets remind us of the plagues that God sent down on Egypt. Remember, Israel did not lift a sword. It did not throw a spear. It did not form an army to go against the Egyptians. God said to Israel, you sit down and watch what I am about to do. God did not bring another country to make war on Egypt. Sometimes he did that. Remember when he brought Assyria in the Old Testament? When Israel had wandered off from him, he brought Assyria to war against the northern kingdom. Then he brought Babylon to war and to ultimately defeat the southern kingdom of Israel. Sometimes God does that. But in this place, he did not bring another world power against Egypt. He brought the elements of his own creation against Egypt. God was at war with Egypt and he turned the Nile, the great Nile, blood red. He sent plagues of frogs and gnats and flies. He sent plagues that killed the livestock. He sent an epidemic of boils. He sent a supernatural darkness. He sent the plague of death on the firstborn of Egypt. He turned the elements of his creation into weapons against Egypt. God was bringing his judgments to bear. Now he did this. He, this wasn't, we've talked about this before. This wasn't just so we could free Israel from slavery. No. He was bringing Egypt into his courtroom. God did not say, you know, Egypt, 
you're really a great country. You're a good country. I hate doing this to you. I really do. But I got to get my people out some way, and this is the way to do it. That's not what he said. If Israel had not been in Egypt, the country would have still been brought under God's judgment. So, what are the events of the first four trumpets? Each trumpet announces an ecological disaster, and every one of them, all four, parallel the plagues of Egypt. Look at the first trumpet. Verse 7, the first angel, the first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and there were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Hail and fire, hail and lightning that burned up a third of the trees and all the grass. This afternoon, Go to Exodus 9, 10, and 11. Exodus 9, 10, and 11. And read about the plagues. You'll read about hail. A hailstorm. Like had never been seen in Egypt. A hailstone with fire fell down on Egypt. Second trumpet. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. A burning mountain was thrown into the sea, and a third of the water became blood, became death, killing a third of the fish. Go again to Exodus 9. Maybe up till now you've thought, that, well, it was just the Nile that he turned to blood. No. He told Moses to also cast his rod on the pools and the ponds and the canals and the reservoirs. Specified that in Exodus. He destroyed all their drinking water. Look at, well, I got ahead of myself. Look at the third trumpet. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from the heavens, blazing like a torch. And a fell a third. A third fell. It fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. So he just didn't poison the Nile. He poisoned all their drinking water with wormwood. Wormwood is a herb. It's a bitter herb. Egypt literally was without water. The fourth trumpet, the fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night the sun and moon and stars were struck so that there was a darkness, a supernatural darkness. Go again to Exodus, the ninth plague, Exodus 10. And you'll read the supernatural 
You'll read of the supernatural darkness that descended on Egypt for three days. Could some of these things be a result of the wars and strife that we saw with the seals? Yes. However, it would seem that the emphasis here has switched to God using his animate and inanimate creation as weapons of judgment. We see this all through the Old Testament. We read it this morning. How did God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Look on your scripture sheet or in your Bibles at Genesis 19, 24. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord of heaven. The sulfur and fire did not come from another nation. It came from God. Before this time, there was another great ecological, greater ecological destruction in the flood of Noah's day. Where did that come from? Noah? You know, the, by, just by accident, there's nothing I can do about it. This storm's going to blow up, and there's going to be a great flood. No. I am sending a flood. God did it. Then we read it in our responsive reading this morning. And I want to read it to you again. It's on your scripture sheet, Amos 4, 6 through 9. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities, a lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew. Your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. God was not using an army of men. He was using armies that the world calls forces of nature. They're really God's forces. Many of you, I would suppose most of you, know the name Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great preacher of London during the last part of the 19th century, the first part of the 20th century. Spurgeon Today, there's a devotional called Morning and Evening. And it's, it's a devotional written by Spurgeon that has a devotion for the morning, a devotion for the evening. There's one coming up on July the 24th. I had it printed on your scripture sheet this morning, and I'm going to read it to you right now. It's from Joel 2.11. His camp, God's camp, is very great. He's looking at God's camp as, as it's a war camp. It's a camp of his army. Consider, my soul, the mightiness of the Lord, who is thy glory and defense. He's a man of war. Jehovah is his name. All the forces of heaven are at his beckoning. Legions wait at his door. Cherubim and seraphim, watchers and holy ones, principalities and powers, all are attentive to his will. If our eyes were not blinded by the ophthalmia of the flesh, we should see horses of fire and chariots of fire around the Lord's beloved. The powers of nature are all subject 
to the absolute control of the Creator. Stormy wind and tempest, lightning and rain and snow and hail, and the soft dews and cheering sunshine come and go at His decree. The bands of Orion He looseth and bindeth the sweet influences of the Pleiades. Earth, sea, and air, and places under the earth are the barracks for Jehovah's great armies. Space is His camping ground, light is His banner, and flame is His sword. When he goes forth to war, famine ravages the land, pestilence smite the nations, hurricane sweeps the sea, tornado shakes the mountains, and earthquake makes the solid world to tremble. As for animate creatures, they all own his dominion. And from the great fish which swallowed the prophet, down to all manner of flies which plagued the fields of Zoan, all are his servants. And like the palmer worm, the caterpillar, the canker worm, are squadrons of his great army, for his camp is very great. My soul, see to it that thou be at peace with this mighty king. Yea, more, be sure to enlist under his banner, for to war against him is madness, and to serve him is glory. Amen. The trumpets are not pointing toward four one-time ecological events that will take place just before the return of Christ. Just as we have seen such events in the Old Testament, Jesus is saying, you'll see such events until I return. Jesus will continue to judge the nations. Sometimes he will destroy a nation by using another nation against it. Sometimes he may destroy the nation or city through ecological events, like we have seen this morning. Question, as we come to the end of this. How does a family, how does a city, how does a nation get into a war relation with God? How do we get in this war relationship with him? God does not start the alienation. Man does. Look at Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. And I would commend to you to memorize. I would commend these verses for you to memorize by heart. For they perfectly describe what is happening in our culture right now. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. They say, let's burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What are they saying? The rulers, the kings are saying, let's break away from the bonds and cords that bind us to God, that bind us to a creator. The world wants to be autonomous. We want to rule ourselves. We want to be self-made and self-sufficient. We don't want to be under God's law. It's easy for us to understand. Because we see it. You'll see it tomorrow morning in the newscast, in the newspapers. They might as well quote Psalm 2. Our culture at present looks at men and women. And say, God, it doesn't matter if you made us men and women. We can decide who we want to be. We're teaching four-year-olds, five-year-olds, seven-years-old 
Hey, you're not a girl or a boy. You just decide what you want to be. You can be a girl if you want to, be a boy if you want to. Or whatever's in between. We want to decide the definition of marriage. We just don't change all the definitions. We want to decide whether the child in the womb lives or dies. God doesn't matter what you want, God. Just what I want. My body's not yours. As a country, we run out of money. And we just print more. Just print another trillion, print another trillion, print another trillion. There's no consequences to that. Sexual promiscuity. It's good. It is good. Sexual perversity is nothing more than sexual diversity. And you know that diversity always is good. Such ideas and actions literally take God and His Word and throws Him on the country's garbage dump. That's where the Bible is today. That's where the church is today. That's where you are today. God's been marginalized. His Word's been marginalized. It means that we have declared war on God. We've declared war on His Word. That's the picture of Psalm 2. Try to go find a major institution in our land today that's not at war with God. What happened when with Egypt, when God sent the plagues. Egypt did not repent. Each time, Pharaoh would say, oh, man, I'm in trouble now. And the plague would be taken away. And his heart would become hard again. We'll say the same thing all through the book of Revelation. We read it this morning. And you did not return to me, says the Lord, and you did not return to me, and you did not return to me. God sent warning after warning after warning. The world will refuse to repent, even when God in His patience warns the world over and over again. The famine comes, that's what He said in Amos. And it wasn't a random act of nature. It was an act of God. The Apostle John saw something of this. This writer of Revelation knew and understood this. While he was yet alive, in 79 A.D., around noon on August the 14th, Pompeii, the city that was famous for its bathhouses and for its immorality. A friend of mine visited those ruins. I heard him speak about it in a sermon he preached. He had visited with his family the site of old Pompeii. He told me that the immorality was so graphic, so awful, that in most of the places he could not take his children. What most people do not know 
Everybody knows that Pompeii was completely destroyed by a volcano in 79 AD. What most people do not know is that Pompeii was devastated in 62 AD by an earthquake. They rebuilt and continued unabated in their worship of wealth, leisure, and sexual perversity. In 2018, who could have dreamed how a tiny virus would bring this nation to an absolute standstill for two or three years? Economy shuts down, schools are closed, 500,000 people died in this country. We're still trying to recover. Is there repentance? What strange is this? Is there a cry going forth from the pulpits of this land that we had better repent? Even from evangelical pulpits. In this matter of COVID, we're not hearing about God's judgment. It's strange. The truth is, folks, we likely heard the sound of a trumpet of God in 2019, 2020, and 21. What do we do with this? These ecological judgments are in the hands of Jesus. This is the good news. The Jesus who died for us. Go back to Revelation 7 this afternoon. After the four horsemen, after the ter all these terrible things, Jesus is seen in glory with the saints of glory. Safe, sound are those saints. Folks, whatever God's judgment brings, and I personally think it's already started. I know this. You're in the hands of Jesus. And that's the greatest consolation. That's the safest place to be. Whether he leaves you on earth or takes you home to glory. That's the consolation. But the trumpets are not over. I didn't read, or did read, but we did not exegete the last verse of chapter 8. After the fourth trumpet. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe. Remember the angels in glory? In Isaiah 6, they sang, holy, 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 thrice holy, 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 the perfection of holiness. Well, this is the perfection of woe. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets 
that the three angels are about to blow. And the eagle flew overhead and screeched, whoa, whoa, whoa. A subject is about to be introduced in Revelation, which has not been introduced, has not been a subject throughout the book to this point. Amen. Our hymn. And you say, how in the world can we sing a hymn after that? <laughs> Our hymn is a familiar hymn. And I chose it. For this reason, he, he speaks about the beauty and the wonder and the friendship of God's creation. But there's a phrase in it. There's a phrase in this hymn that talks this way about creation. And then it says, And Jesus who died shall be satisfied. And he will be. Our hymn is 111. <laughs> 